Welcome to Your Path to Nonprofit Leadership, the weekly podcast that features the very best in productivity and professional development in the nonprofit sector. I'm your host, Patton McDowell, and happy to bring you ideas and resources so you can build your professional development plan. First, I'd like to give a shout out to those of you who have left reviews and feedback on our various social media channels. I really appreciate the encouragement and your ideas for topics and guests only strengthen the planning for this podcast and the episodes coming up. Uh, We will continue to bring you weekly conversations with experts who can help you on your journey. Well, speaking of experts, I've got a fantastic conversation to share with you this week, and it's with Brian Manis, who is the president and CEO of the Children's Home Society of North Carolina. Uh, He's had an impressive journey of almost 20 years at that organization, starting in a marketing role, working his way all the way up to the CEO position. Uh, He oversees a statewide organization with several hundred employees uh, at 10 different locations and serving over 20,000 families every year. Uh, We had lots of good topics to cover, and Brian has some takeaways for you to consider Three in particular I'll point out. Number one, how he's incorporated bullet journaling as a means to best organize all of the activities that are on his plate every day. Um, Also, how he has maximized networking and even has created a personal board of directors, which is a concept I am a big fan of. Um, And he also talks about how he's maximized the talents of his staff, his board, and his community partners to be successful as a leader and certainly to amplify the great work of Children's Home Society in North Carolina. Um, He also has some great books, uh, certainly some classics that are already on the uh, bookshelf here at the PMA Library. Don't forget to check out all this through the show notes. This is episode number 37. Just go to the podcast or the news page at PattonMcDowell.com and you'll see all of the resources that Brian and I discuss as well as to learn more about Brian and the work he's doing at Children's Home Society. Once again, if our team can be a resource to you, uh, please feel free to reach out to us. Let's have a conversation and talk about some of the intelligence we've been able to gather across the country from nonprofit leaders like Brian that might help you on your professional journey or to help your organization as it contemplates planning, fundraising, and staff and board development. Once again, thank you for listening in to this podcast each week, and please enjoy this conversation with Brian Manus. Brian, thank you for joining me on the path. Patton, I'm thrilled to be here. I've been looking forward to this, so thank you for the invitation. Well, your journey is a fantastic one to discuss. Um, You have had multiple experiences uh, with Children's Home Society over nearly 20 years and of course now in the senior leader role. Um, Your journey is one I think a lot of our listeners uh, can relate to or aspire to. So I'm excited to kind of learn more about the lessons you've picked up over the course of your time. So maybe start with that, Brian. How and why did you get into nonprofit work? Well, Patton, I may be a, a bit of an anomaly. Uh, the organization that I work for, the Children's Home Society of North Carolina, this is the only nonprofit that I have ever worked with. And as you said, I've been here for almost 20 years. My prior career, the first uh, several years of my career were spent in marketing. And 
enjoyed that work uh, quite a bit, but in my late 20s, I really was just struggling with wanting to find more purpose in my vocation and my work. And, and um, I, the Children's Home Society was a client of the firm that I was with, and uh, that was my introduction. And when I came on board, um, it wasn't really with a thought that one day that I would be leading this organization. It really, right. that was far from my mind. But uh, I joined as uh, a part-time staff member uh, in the marketing group. And about a month later, uh, I came on full-time as the leader of the marketing team and and then just grew from there. And I've had uh, a, a variety of different roles and responsibilities over my time here at Children's Home Society. And, um, you know, it's, it's one of the best decisions that I've made in my life, Pat. And it's uh, been very, very challenging and rewarding. That's fantastic and such a good example of getting your foot in the door and sometimes we don't know exactly where things will lead but it sounds like that calling you felt in your late 20s certainly has been uh, one that's been incredibly rewarding ever since yeah absolutely absolutely and a lot of folks a lot of times folks ask me about my uh, my entry into the nonprofit world and and one of the things that I uh, encourage people to focus on is finding an organization that has both a mission and a cultural fit that really um, aligns with who they are and their their priorities and what, what they really want from their career. That has made all the difference for me. And when people ask me what has kept me at Children's Home Society all these years, you know, the uh, two or three things that I always point to are that the mission, which I've always felt compelled by and inspired by, the culture here has been one that that I have really appreciated and and, and the people. And uh, right. I always encourage folks to really consider those those factors. Did you know quickly the culture was was, you know, right for you? And how did you kind of know this culture at Children's Home Society was one that you could obviously be a long-term player in? Yeah. Um, well, part of that culture is just tied to the mission. And we're a really compassionate organization that's really client-focused. And so that that kind of spoke to that kind of vocational need that I was feeling around wanting to devote my life's work to something that I really cared about. The other side is, is, is pretty interesting. My predecessor, the former CEO uh, who I worked with for about a dozen years before I stepped into the CEO role, uh, he had a background in business. And, and like me, the Children's Home Society was the only nonprofit organization that he ever worked with. Prior to that, he was the CFO for um, a, a very large apparel manufacturer and branded apparel company. And, wow. and so it was this blend of uh, mission, which is very much tied to to improving the lives of our clients um, with business acumen. And that, is, uh, that was an environment and kind of a, a culture that really resonated with me and um, has, has uh, been a very good thing for me over the years. Yeah, that's, that's fantastic. And in fact, this may be a good time to ask you, I know the Children's Home Society, you're based in Greensboro, but are truly a statewide organization. Maybe describe what you do and kind of the scope of programming across North Carolina. Sure. So Children's Home Society was founded more than a century ago, way back in 1902. And, 
And uh, we, we've always been, from our earliest days, a statewide organization. We are headquartered in Greensboro, but have offices and staff teams that are located in, in most of the uh, major cities around the state. We have about 300 full-time staff. We serve about 20,000 uh, children and families each year across our state. And one thing that I always mention to folks if they're not familiar with us is that um, our name is a bit of a misnomer, the Children's Home Society, uh, <laughs> right. because people associate us with a historic children's home or what may have one time been an orphanage. And that, that's not who we are, and, and it's not who we ever were. From the very beginning of, of the Children's Home Society, we've always been focused on families. And our mission is simply stated, and it has endured since our founding, it's to promote the right of every child to a permanent, safe, and loving family. And so all of our work around the state is focused to that end. We're probably best known for our work in adoption. We've placed uh, 16,000 plus children into adoptive families in our history. We'll place more than 200 children this year for adoption. So adoption is a, a major component, but we, we've really uh, diversified our work considerably over the last 20 years. And we do a lot of work supporting children and families involved with our uh, uh, public foster care system. And we do a lot of family strengthening and support work to, to help families deal with uh, whatever stresses and challenges they may be facing so that they never uh, have the need or come in contact with the public foster care system. So that's a bit of an overview of uh, what we do. It's a great summary. And of course, we will lift up the, the work you're doing at Children's Home Society in the show notes associated with this episode, because I want and encourage people to get to know this organization in North Carolina or, or related organizations. I guess, Brian, are, are you part of a national network, so to speak, or other listeners from other parts of the, the U.S., I'm guessing, might have access to similar organizations in their states? Sure. I'm glad you mentioned that. I, I will uh, mention our national network, which is uh, named the Children's Home Society of America. And we uh, have about 25 member organizations that are the leading child welfare organizations or family support organizations in their respective states. And those 25 organizations are are serving children and families in about 30 states across the country. So not the whole country, but the majority of the country is represented. And um, that is a, has been a great learning community for us. And we, you know, have regular collaboration and, and, and work together to, to learn from one another, but also to advance important things from a national perspective as well. Yeah, I figured that was a network that was of great value to what you do and your organization. And of course, it leads me, though, to drill down into your personal management uh, techniques and skills. Brian, you've got a couple hundred employees. You've got thousands of families you're serving. So how does a nonprofit leader like you uh, keep it all organized? <laughs> well, that's assuming that I do keep it all in, <laughs> uh, but I do my best. I think it, it's a really uh, important challenge and, and opportunity that all leaders in the nonprofit field face. There's really countless demands on your attention and time and, and energies. And, and I think how you stay organized and focused is, is very, very important in a variety of ways. Uh, one, in terms of what you get accomplished, and so many people look to you to set direction and vision and uh, resource allocation and other things, and for your own uh, well-being. Um, 
Um, so for all those reasons, I, I, I think organization is really important. A number of years ago, about the time that I became CEO uh, of Children's Home Society, about six years ago, a friend of mine uh, introduced me to a journaling, uh, um, uh, I'll call it a platform, but just kind of a, a, a system called yep. the, the Bullet Journal. And I don't know if you're familiar with that. And I have heard about it. Yeah, but love to hear. I, I, it has become, I guess an important part of your organizational strategy? Well, it's been become an important part of my personal organizational strategy. So, right. uh, and, and what I have found that's really uh, uh, very nice about the bar, bullet journal type of system, that it's customizable. You can adapt it to suit your own purposes and needs. But those that work closely with me know that I'm, I'm somewhat fanatical about my own organization in terms of my goals and priorities and what gets my attention and focus. And this exercise of getting disciplined around using this system over the last five or six years has really, really helped me with that. I, I uh, use it for helping me establish annual, quarterly, monthly, and weekly uh, goals and priorities, and even down to ta specific tasks on a weekly basis. Um, and from a personal standpoint, I don't know what I would do without it at this point. I've become wow. so um, uh, uh, dependent on, on it to stay organized and focused. And, and um, you know, organizationally, we use Outlook and Outlook calendaring systems and other things that really help us uh, uh, collaborate across our organization. And so that really helps from a, from a daily and a calendar perspective. But but in terms of the higher level goals, focus areas, and priorities, my, my, my journaling practice is, is what has kept me on track. Um, I'm a big fan and a journaling, uh, a routine I've tried to develop as well. Um, I take it that has uh, not a technology aspect, Brian, is that literally a handwritten ritual, which I think is great, or is there any technology component to the bullet journal routine that you have? You know, I'm, I'm very technology oriented in many aspects of my work, but, but my journaling practice is old school uh, uh, and to the nth degree patent. And to paper. And <laughs> to paper. And, uh, uh, but it's pretty neat because I have all of my um, journals going back years and years. And, and sometimes I go back and reference those and see what had my attention. And, and when I say journaling, I want to mention one thing. It's, I, I don't, uh, journal to the point where I'm uh, taking notes of everything that's happening during my days. It's not that kind of journaling. It's it's more of a system of keeping track of important things and priorities. And um, but that's what I mentioned earlier about you know a bullet journal types of system or or anything that you develop is customizable to suit your own needs. Yeah, it's fantastic. And uh, had an episode. I think it was 15 or 16. Uh, Clay Hodges. We talked about writing rituals for nonprofit leadership, and I really believe that there is value uh, in organizational sense, uh, and as just as you have proven, uh, sounds like you have uh, relied on it and continue to rely on it in a very significant way. So I think that's fantastic. Um, talk about when you first arrived to the CEO role, Brian. You obviously you grew up in the organization, so to speak. So it wasn't like this was a new organization, but 
many of our listeners again are thinking about, you know, being uh, ED CEO someday. Do you recall some of those uh, first things you realized as you took the big chair? Sure. And, and you mentioned taking the big chair. I, and one of the things that that stays with me is that I had been preparing and I had for years prior to becoming the CEO had uh, envisioned that that was uh, um, a probable step for me and from a career standpoint. So I had been mentally kind of preparing for it, but until you do sit in the chair, you're just not in the chair. And there's exactly. some, some aspects and perspective of kind of being in that position that you can prepare as best you can for, but some of it comes um, from the actual practice of actually owning the job. Um, Were there surprises, Brian? Anything that you recall that, or just simply the perspective is different when you're in that chair? Well, if it's okay, I'll, I'll mention a couple of things that were going on with our organization, which were a big part of my transition into this role. Absolutely. So, so I mentioned my predecessor uh, and his professional background. Well, uh, he passed away unexpectedly while he was still in office as the president and CEO of Children's Home. Wow. And so it was a, a very unexpected transition in terms of timing. And he had also been the leader of our organization for a very long time, 25 years. And although he wasn't the founder, in many respects, he was kind of known and and associated as such a pivotal figure with the organization. And I can recall uh, just, uh, well, I'll mention the the newspaper article the, the day after he died, the front page story included a huge picture of him with the headline that uh, we as a community have lost a giant. Wow. Uh, so he, he was just an important, um, um, important figure, both in the community and for the organization. I can even remember a board member uh, uh, making a comment after he passed away that, uh, how are we going to go on? And, <laughs> and, and so it was a, it was a not exactly a confidence boost for the successor, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> well, I did not take that personally at all. Right, it, it, what right. it really spoke to was just uh, the respect and uh, kind of position that he held in people's minds. At the same time, we were organizationally dealing with some, some real significant challenges financial challenges, some organizational challenges. And this was in 2014. And as we had, we, we had come through the, the great recession, but in some respects we hadn't fully recovered from the, from the recession of 2008 and the years. Right. Right. And uh, so it was a real challenging time uh, to both help the organization and the children's home society community through the loss of a pivotal leader but also to tackle and take on the, the challenges that we were facing as an organization. And so um, it was all hands on deck when I, when I uh, first became CEO. And, wow. and, and uh, you, you reference a book, uh, I know several times, The Obstacle is the Way. Indeed. And, and I'm a fan of that book. And, and when I reflect on those early days and months and the first couple of years of my time as CEO, you know, some of those challenges were the things that uh, that got our focus that actually made us a lot stronger through that transition. 
And uh, I think we handled things really, really well as an organization. And, and uh, you know, as I have perspective now, five or six years later, we've made tremendous progress and, and are in a really great position at this point. Well, and no organization, of course, wants to go through the tragedy of a sudden loss of its leader. But um, you all demonstrated that a succession plan was indeed in place. And is it fair to say that that's a great example of having your succession plan is, is such an important element? Yeah, I think that's right. And we had a longer term succession plan in place, but we also had an immediate succession plan. Like what would happen on day one if something happened to the leader of the organization? And, and when I reflect back on that time, that really served us well because um, when my predecessor passed away, you know, the next day we were able to meet with our, the executive committee of our board and, and enact that emergency succession plan, which did not allow for any gap of leadership or a time where the board had to struggle through, you know, uh, what, what the long-term strategy was going to be in terms of succession. So I think a long-term succession plan is important, but I think even more important or just as, a, as important as an emergency succession plan uh, should something happen to, to a leader. I'm glad you mentioned that because I think most of our nonprofit colleagues, Brian, you're right, have a general, in some cases, a vague sense of, all right, I guess it's the number two person that's going to succeed. But your point is that, yeah, but what happens literally the next day? Are we going to launch a search or who's going to deal with, I guess, all the mechanical things that a large organization like yours had to, to deal with? That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Well, it, were there other resources? Again, the plan was in place. You had a strong team, as you recall, again, starting off. Were there particular resources or things that helped you kind of get in motion and, and get even more confident in your new role? I think one of the things that really helped me, Patton, was my tenure with the organization prior to the success, uh, succession and transition to the CEO role. I had been with my organization for 12 years, so I, I had really strong relationships internally and externally and with the board. And I think that that really helped. And uh, one of uh, my responsibilities um, prior and in, in my prior role before becoming CEO was working with all of our major funders and public sector partners. And, right. and those relationships were really, really key, both to the to the transition and then then longer term as well. So I think that's one thing that really served me well as an internal candidate. Uh, the other thing that I would point to is I've been a big believer in um, ha having folks that serve as coaches or I've heard you advocate before for kind of having a personal board of directors. And I've had relationships like that in my in my professional life for going back 20 or 25 years. And one, one person that I would characterize as a coach, but it's been in an informal sense, has kind of walked with me through uh, most of my professional career. And he was a wonderful sounding board and kind of independent uh, uh, voice in my life, th particularly through that, that transition period as we were uh, dealing with many challenges and 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 a lot of change and uh, so I, I'm, I'm a big believer of of coaching relationships of having kind of outside counsel and perspective that you can go to uh, because having that internal to your organization is great and having really great relationships with your board chair 
is really essential and with right. other board members, but you also, you, you, you need outside perspective to, to, uh, to round out your perspective. Could not agree more. Sometimes we all, you know, don't see the forest through the trees and um, despite the talent that is immediately around us. So it sounds like you've done a great job of identifying and maintaining that network, whether it be a personal board of directors or a mentor or a friend. Um, but it sounds like it certainly paid off uh, in that time of uh, new leadership. Uh, talk about Brian, the, uh, you, you put together a very successful and talented team, uh, your philosophy to, hiring and retaining talented people what has that evolved since you've been the ceo or is i guess you've always had some of those principles of, of building a team um well i always try to to focus a lot of effort on on the team that we're trying to build both for the short term and for the long term i i would say my appreciation for how important that is has really grown over the years and and um we do have a, 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 an incredible leadership team uh, here at Children's Home Society that uh, we have had some transition over the last few years, but, but others that have been with us for, for many, many years. And I think it's a, a, it's a good balance of new energy and perspective and also historical uh, institutional knowledge and, and memory. Um, a couple of things I think are, are really important. And uh, if you get hiring right, <laughs> If, uh, in your organization, and particularly for key positions, it makes everything else easier. And if, you, and if you don't get it right, it makes everything else harder. And so and I'm glad that you, you brought this up because I think for uh, aspiring leaders and current leaders in the field, it, it's a really, really important issue. Uh, I, I think one of the things that I've gotten greater appreciation for over the years is that, you know, as you're coming up in organizations, oftentimes you will have a job as an individual leader or contributor. You're responsible for a set of uh, things and accountable for those things. And a lot of your success is tied to what you do. And as right. you as you grow and, and have increasing levels of responsibility, and this is, is can be really profound as, as the uh, CEO or executive director of an organization, most of the success of the organization and and your success is thanks and due to the the success of others so there's a transition that occurs in terms of your focus on moving to one of support and focus on how do you help other people succeed interesting and, yep and and that's really important and i try to keep that focused you know uh uh, our leadership team has five vice presidents that work alongside me on on the leadership team and and their success is really important to me. And uh, I spent a lot of time trying to support them and, and, uh, and having an environment that is really conducive to learning and growing and challenge is, is really important. And I think that from a retention standpoint, the two things I think probably are most important from a retention standpoint um, are Supporting staff, making sure that you're available and that you have uh, time and energy and attention to support them, and also providing opportunities for them to really grow in their work. And um, if you get those two things right, and of course there are other other factors and variables, but I think if you get those two things right, you will have made uh, uh, great progress in terms of attracting the right folks and 
and retaining them. It's well put. And I, I take it you're intentional then about professional development opportunities or do you encourage them to identify their own professional development needs and sounds like you support them in that, that instance? Well, we do. That's part of all of our, you know, kind of annual process in terms of setting goals and priorities. Half of the goals and priorities, all of our staff, including our leaders, set are, are from a professional development standpoint. So we try to integrate that as much as, as we can. I mentioned earlier in our conversation, uh, my belief in having coaches and, and, and folks that are investing and, and kind of walking with you from a professional development standpoint. And, and so I've been uh, fortunate to have opportunities to have executive coaches over my professional career and, and a number of formal leadership development programs. I think, I think those are, um, you, you can be very valuable. We, we have a partnership with a, a leadership development firm that's, that's based here in North Carolina called the Center for Creative Leadership. And yes, indeed. We, we, we uh, uh, work in partnership with them and have, you know, cohorts of folks every year that go through their programs. And uh, for many of those, there's a, a formal program aspect, but also a coaching aspect to that as well. So all of those, I think, are important things to think about and, and opportunities to consider from a professional development standpoint. Yeah, good for you, Brian. And I, that's, I think, fantastic. And I'm convinced it's leaders like you that encourage professional development are the ones that are retaining talent because we all know of the turnover in the nonprofit sector that plagues many organizations. But I'm convinced while salary is important, um, I, I really think those organizations that invest in their folks are the ones that are going to retain them. And sounds like you have proven that to be true. Well, you know, it's something that we try to do and, and constantly try to keep a focus on. And, and, uh, and I imagine we will continue that long into the future. <laughs> yes, indeed. As long as you're at the helm, that's good to hear. And well, let me ask you something else about you uh, being in the helm. Obviously you knew fundraising, you did it before you assumed the CEO role how did fundraising change for you? We know it's important to every CEO, but do you recall a kind of a dramatic shift in the fundraising responsibilities that you took on when you moved into the senior role? Well, you mentioned earlier, Patton, that uh, a, a, a phrase being in the chair, and that's one of the things that I reflect on. Fundraising as the CEO is a little bit different than fundraising as the chief development or advancement officer. Um, yeah, tell me, tell me about that. Yeah, I'm eager to hear. Well, there's there's only one CEO in an organization, and, <laughs> and, and so often, you know, your your community of supporters, uh, so much of their um, trust and, and relationship with the organization, even though it might not be tied directly with the CEO, but oftentimes is, uh, the CEO kind of sets the, uh, sets the table for that level of trust and confidence in the organization. And there's nothing that can substitute for that. And, and, uh, and that was a unique thing that I have a greater appreciation for now, having been in the role for a number of years than, than uh, than prior um, that I that I didn't anticipate to the degree that I that I found it to be so. Are you spending more time fundraising, less time, or is it? I guess hard to to pinpoint maybe the exact time frame. I'm curious. Yeah, has that changed in terms of the volume of activity given all of the things you now have to be responsible for? Yeah, and it's interesting, Pat. And this, especially over the last few months, it's kind of our our 
normal in terms of what gets our attention and energy and the time commitment that we allocate to different things has, has, has been uh, uh, upended in many ways. Yeah. But, yeah. but typically, at least half or more of my time is spent on resource development types of efforts. And, but those can be very, very broad. They, some of those might be direct uh, efforts with, with donors uh, fostering those relationships. But, but also, it can be on, on more longer-range strategic issues uh, that, that ultimately impact uh, resource development and, and fundraising type of efforts. So, yeah, it's a good point. It's inter- interconnected, and it? Um, it, as opposed to just direct solicitation of gifts. Pat, I would I would make uh, one comment about uh, the challenges that we faced as an organization that I referenced earlier. Uh, a lot of times, those challenges create uh, great opportunities and platforms to engage donor communities. And we started a capital campaign or a, a, a comprehensive campaign shortly after I became the CEO. And at the time. You know, there were there were questions because we were facing a number of challenges about is this the right time to work on a campaign and and um, I really felt strongly that it was and 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 we created for our campaign the 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 name of it is the promise of family campaign prior to that original prior to that the largest campaign we'd ever conducted had raised about 11 million dollars and we set a $25 million goal and now five years later, we're ready to close out that campaign and we've raised just over $50 million. Wow. Fantastic. But at the time, if you had asked me or uh, our board or, you know, those closest uh, in our community, whether that was possible five or six years ago, I, I think there would have been, have been more questions and some, some healthy skepticism uh, around that, but um, I would encourage your listeners to to embrace times of challenge as opportunities uh, to really engage your community, your donor community, and maybe new members of of your community. You know, to help address those challenges, and uh, it certainly has paid off for us. Well, such a good point, and it's easy to get overwhelmed and withdraw, but your point is well made that. Uh, the relationships that you have with these key donors perhaps could be further enhanced if you bring them into the fold of these challenges and perhaps it turns into investment. And clearly your campaign demonstrated, you, 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 you articulated the needs of, I'm sure, families across North Carolina that you were serving. And sure enough, people stepped up and uh, were willing to invest. It's been something that I have been... Uh profoundly inspired by Patton and, and obviously tremendously grateful for as well. Well, you, you, you've, you've nailed, uh, I think, some of the fundamentals for nonprofit leadership. We've talked about kind of staff building your team and retaining talent. Uh, we talked about fundraising. Every CEO, I think, that's in the role or wants to be in the role is trying to get their hands around my fundraising responsibilities. Let's talk about another one, I guess, in that triple crown maybe is the board. And you mentioned earlier the the importance of the the communication with your board chair. Are there other principles that you would lift up for our listeners in terms of as a CEO dealing with and building your board of directors? Yeah, I think you're as as a CEO or 
as an executive director, your relationship with the board is, is so important. And that starts first and foremost with your board chair. And I have had the fortune of working with um, several board chairs. We have a, a, a cycle of a two year uh, board chair appointment. And so every two years we have a new board chair and, and uh, I have uh, been fortunate to work with really incredible board chairs and, and, uh, from both perspectives, from theirs and from my own, we've really prioritized the relationship to make sure that we have one of openness and transparency and high trust and confidence in one another, really a close working relationship. And I think as a CEO or, or executive director, if you get that relationship right, that starts to inform and touch and, and, um, and kind of set the standard for the relationship with the rest of the board as well. So that's one thing that I would, I would you go out of your way, Brian, and sorry to interrupt you. I just, yeah. it sounds like you were intentional about this is not just going to be kind of the transactional meeting management role of a board chair, but you were trying to make sure you had a good interpersonal relationship with that person. Yeah. And not just that person, but as I mentioned, several uh, board chairs that I've had over the last six years since I've been CEO here. And, and, and it goes both ways. I think it's been a priority for our board chairs as well. And um, so, yeah, the, the strength of that personal relationship, I think, has been a big factor in, in our success overall and our successful working relationship together. Absolutely. But anything else that, I mean, in terms of helping cultivate, I know your board has its own nominating functions, but are there other things that you have tried to kind of put your influence on to, to assure the board is like your staff, you're attracting and retaining talented people? Yeah, I, I think the, the key, much as we talked about in terms of uh, attracting uh, top talent from a staff perspective, getting the right people engaged and onto your board is really important. And if you can get that right, it makes everything else uh, go better. We are, uh, as, as we mentioned earlier, a statewide organization. We do have a pretty large board. We have a board of about 30 voting members and it is a statewide board. Right. And um, it does have responsibilities that, that obviously include governance and fiduciary responsibilities, but also fundraising and community relations responsibilities. We also have established in the last few years local community leadership boards uh, that are in, in several of the cities around our state. And those are great developmental opportunities for, for future board members. And we have seen our governing board members coming from our local community leadership councils uh, over the last few years to a significant degree. So that, that has been one, one really helpful thing. Nice. From, uh, board nice. development perspective. And there's one other thing uh, that I think is important, and, and maybe it falls under board retention, but maybe more broadly under board engagement, that I think doesn't get enough focus in our sector. You know, boards have a number of responsibilities, certainly a fiduciary responsibility in terms of financial oversight of the organization, uh, as well as policies. They also have a strategic uh, responsibility to, to make sure that the organization has some form of a strategic plan and priorities that they are holding management responsible for advancing towards. Right. But there's a third area of responsibility for boards that I don't think gets enough focus. And that's more of a generative 
nature and thinking not just about the current set of strategies and priorities and not just about how are we doing financially and do we have the policies needed to govern the organization effectively, but what's on the horizon? What are the, what are the longer term big issues that the organization needs to grapple with and, um, and what's the board's role in doing that? And so we, we have tried and have been successful, I think, at, at uh, allowing much more time and space for generative, long-range, open-ended type of discussions with our board. Um, and, and I think that's healthy for an organization. It helps with board engagement, and it, it really helps individual board members contribute to and take part in, in helping set long range direction for the organization. Yeah, I love that. And you're right. It has to be more engaging. I guess there's some board members that maybe want to get in the weeds, but I would imagine the majority don't want to be in the weeds, certainly given the staff talent that can manage all the operations of children's home society. So you're giving them what sounds to me like more exciting strategic thinking. In fact, I've done some work with Board Source, Brian. I know you're familiar with them as well. And they talk about this generative thinking concept that, you know, once a year at least, think about, you know, even radically different scenarios for your organization going forward. Is is that how do you kind of keep these generative topics on the agenda for retreats or other ways that I guess how do you do that? How do you how do you give them generative thinking opportunities? Yeah, so uh, uh, periodically we will do retreats and other things like that, but I think the probably most practical way that we do it is every board meeting, we try to allow time for some kind of generative discussion. Nice. And and usually it's an hour to an hour and a half. Typically our board meetings uh, run about three and a half hours long in total. And 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 we our board meets uh, for scheduled meetings four times a year. So not not monthly or more frequently than that. Right. Right. Uh, but every time our board gets together, we have uh, uh, an open-ended, uh, generative type of conversation, and we try to to do what we can from a management standpoint to make sure that we provide any kind of background or resource material that's going to really foster a good conversation. And so as part of our board materials that go out in advance, it always includes kind of a backdrop and, and foundation for this discussion. And, and I find that when we provide materials to help prepare people in advance, it makes for really, really quality discussions. That's fantastic. You're not burying them in staff reports. No offense to our staff friends who have important things to report, but your meetings are not going to be consumed by kind of day-to-day reporting. You want them to put their brainstorming hats on, don't you? That's absolutely right. (laughs) Well, you already gave me evidence of the importance of succession planning and in particular emergency uh, succession planning as you dealt with uh, the sudden departure of your leader. I I wonder uh, in recent times, we've all been faced with this unprecedented, you know, COVID-19 situation. How did you address that as an organization? Uh, You had a whole lot coming at you uh, quickly. I'm curious, Brian, did some of your kind of succession planning, if you will, as an organization help as you adapted quickly to the current environment? I think maybe one of the ways that it has helped us is that uh, we're, a, we're an action-oriented organization. And so um, as this hit, you know, we tend to address things 
quickly and just just have a bias towards action as an organization. Um, and and those, some of those lessons were uh, either learned or advanced through the succession, you know, that happened six years ago when I became CEO. Right. One of the things that we did was formed a response team right away. And so as soon as we, uh, you know, started learning about COVID-19 and what was in store, we, we assembled a focus group with four or five individuals that was really tracking all the developments that were happening on a state, local, national level, and making sure that our executive team had the information that they needed to make decisions. Um, nice. Is that staff and board or other, or what, what was the makeup of that group? That, that was entirely a staff group, although was reporting regularly to our board chair and a couple of other members of our board. But gotcha. the team itself was a, was a staff-focused group. Um, Got it. So that, that was really key. Another thing for us was just leveraging relationships. And, and we talked earlier about our national network of organizations like ours. And this was an opportunity to pull that group together. I have the, um, uh, the fortune of the last few years to serve as the board chair of that organization. Yeah, so one of the other things that I would mention is leveraging uh, relationships and others that, that that you can learn from. For us, we mentioned earlier our national network of other organizations through the Children's Home Society of America. We were able to pull that group together. And since the start of this pandemic, we've been uh, holding weekly calls with the leaders of those organizations. And uh, I have, and my organization has really benefited from that. Just to give you a practical example, you know, uh, the state of Washington and Seattle was an early epicenter. Uh, That's right. Yeah. Issue. And then certainly New York has become uh, the epicenter for um, COVID-19 in, in the country. Well, we have organizations as part of our peer network that are headquartered in both Seattle and New York City. And, and so we were able to learn from their experiences early on, which helped prepare us to what to what to do from a staff standpoint to a going remote to a interactions with our clients and and taking advantage of and creating those kind of opportunities to learn from others i think is a big takeaway for me yeah that's such a good idea and of course it reinforces your point that if you have built-in networks and relationships it's so much easier to activate them in times of crisis right and you were able to quickly assemble both internally and externally a mechanism for both information gathering. And then it sounds like you've already moved quickly and successfully to, um, I guess, pivot programming. I mean, talk about that. Cause I, you know, a lot of executive directors I'm speaking with are like, yeah, well, what do I do with my strategic plan now? You know, everything's kind of out the window. So did you all looked at everything you're doing and, and the peers have been able to adjust pretty quickly? Well, we've been fortunate, Patton, that all of our services have been able to continue. Now, they all look different at this point. So much of our work happens with our staff working in homes with particular families. And obviously that work can't go forward in the same way right now, given the social distancing measures that are in place. But we've utilized technology and, and uh, uh, uh remote conferencing and, and all of our work has been able to continue. It's just required some adapting and um, adaptability on the part of our staff. So uh, I do think going forward as, as we start to return to 
a new normal and I don't think it will be a return to the old normal. It's yeah, going to be right. an adapted normal, but we're, we're looking at how do we take some of what has gone well and we've learned from this into the future. I, I, I don't think we're going to be a total remote virtual type of organization. I don't think that's where we're going, but I do think we've learned that a lot of our work and communication, both internally between staff and with our clients and with specific children and families can be done virtually. And so I think we'll be looking at how do we, how do we build on that in the future? And, uh, one of the things that I would I would mention as we've navigated this, when when you're really clear on what your priorities are, and you you're faced with a catastrophe or a crisis like this, uh, all decisions become easier. And and for us, our priority throughout this has been on the safety and well-being of our staff and the safety and well-being of our clients. And and having those two foundational pillars in terms of priorities has really provided the clarity that has guided all of our decisions over the last two to three months as we've navigated this. And, and so you mentioned the word uh, triage, I think, or, or you know, <laughs> right. responding in the moment to this. And I, I think getting uh, very clear from a leadership perspective on what the priorities are early on is, is the first step and, and should be the priority. And it, it helped provide focus to everything else, didn't it? It sounds like yes. it just clarity and focus was more possible. Um, well, Brian, great examples. And throughout every topic uh, we've touched on, you have given very practical advice, and I'm grateful for that. I, and you started with, I guess, your own journey, uh, the mission focus and the culture and the fit. Uh, are there other things that, that you would mention to someone if they came to you and said, I, I you know, I'm thinking about either starting in the nonprofit sector or maybe leaving the for-profit for nonprofit. Uh, other words of wisdom you offer someone like that? I, I do think uh, several things uh, come to my mind. Um, one, there's often a perception that some somehow the nonprofit field is going to be less challenging or um, well, that's probably a good way to put it. Somebody <laughs> yeah. tra transitioning from the for-profit sector. And as someone who's worked in both sectors, I can tell you that is not the case. Good. <laughs> um, Thank you for pointing that out. Yep. So the challenges are different in some respects, but the nonprofit sector is no less challenging than, than the for-profit sector. So I think uh, considering that and coming into the nonprofit sector with a degree of humility and willingness to learn and to adapt. And certainly there were, there are skills that folks coming from any background will bring into an organization and into the field in general, but there's also going to be a tremendous amount of learning opportunities. So that kind of mindset I think is, is really important. Um, the other thing I think is really important is, is spend time. And I think I mentioned this earlier, spend time thinking about, the type of organization and mission and the type of culture of organization that you want to be a part of. Um, I, I think that's so important. It's, it's really been part of what has kept me at my organization for so long. And it's really what we try to hire for. And we're trying to find folks that are, are hungry, humble and smart and are compelled 
to the mission and work of the organization because it can be difficult. And there are days that you have to draw upon something deeper in terms of staying motivated and committed to the work. And if that mission really, really aligns with you personally, I think that that's a big help. And the last thing I'll say is that uh, to take care of yourself. And uh, I've been in this field for 18 years now, Patton, and I've had uh, a particular appreciation for how important this aspect of balancing uh, all that you do from a professional standpoint with the demands on your life outside of work and how important it is to to be well and to invest in your own well-being. And uh, that pays huge dividends, not just in your own life, but everyone around you. And it leadership positions in the nonprofit field can be very demanding. You know, the, yep. the demands on your time and energy and, uh, and on you in general are just really profound. And um, when, when you make sure that, that your own well-being is a priority through that, uh, it's important in so many different areas. And ultimately, I think pays huge dividends in terms of how you support others, how you support your staff, and your ability to lead your organization. Well put, Brian. And certainly there's no more important time to take care of yourself than right now, given the added stress of work from home and other COVID-19 related elements. But regardless of the time period in your life, I'm glad you're lifting up uh, self-care as something that's important. And all of your advice has been wonderful, I think, for our nonprofit listeners and colleagues. Um, Speaking of self-care, I'm a big fan, as you know, of reading for inspiration and information and wonder if you might share with our listeners some parting gifts. (laughs) What books have been meaningful to you personally and perhaps ones you recommend to others? Well, I've... uh... I appreciate that about you and your recommendations in terms of books and other resources, Pat. And so thanks for inviting me to share a few. Um, I, I would mention three from a long list of books that, that have really influenced me. Sure. And, and they're all kind of foundational types of books. One is the seven habits of highly effective people by Stephen Covey. I, I read that really early on in my nonprofit journey and I've referenced back to it. Uh, countless times. I think it's full of full of wisdom and, and really practical things. Uh, Excellent. Yep. Essentialism by Greg McEwen or McCowan is another one that I would point to. We'd spend part of our conversation talking about prioritization and staying organized. And I think anyone interested in, in those areas, essentialism is a wonderful and, 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 and easy read. Yes, yes. And then in terms of organizational leadership and strategy, you know, many people have read Good to Great by Jim Collins. And, and uh, I, I point back to that one as kind of a foundational organizational leadership strategy book for me. And for those working in the social sectors, he also uh, published a monograph that accompanied uh, Good to Great that's a resource to folks that I think is really valuable as well. Brian, those are fantastic recommendations. I think you're right. Those are kind of fundamental texts that we should all have on our bookshelf. And it sounds like you not only have them on yourself, but you refer to them often. And that's, uh, again, great advice. But Brian, thank you for for being part of this conversation, for your good work. Uh, Is there 
Obviously, the website for Children's Home Society um, is one that I will feature in the show notes. Is there anywhere else that you would uh, direct listeners to learn more about the, the good work you're doing there? I think in addition to our website, you know, we're on most channels of social media. So you can you can look us up on social media and, and connect with us in whatever way uh, is most uh, conducive for them. So Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, et cetera, uh, in addition to our website. Fantastic. Uh, we'll make sure that is clear. And Brian, thank you very much for joining me on the path. Patton, it's been a pleasure. I thank you for everything that you do. And thanks for the opportunity to have this conversation today. I've really enjoyed it. Well, I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Brian as much as I did and came away with some practical ideas that can shape your professional development and your organization strategy. Don't forget the show notes are available at our website, PattonMcDowell.com, where you can find out more about everything Brian and I discussed, as well as some good books to add to your list. As always, please share this episode with someone else on the path. If you haven't already, consider subscribing to the podcast. Again, go to PattonMcDowell.com and you'll see links to Apple, Spotify, and all of the major podcast platforms. Don't want you to miss any of our weekly episodes as well as the bonus features we've got lined up once a month at minimum. Thanks for all you're doing in the nonprofit sector, especially right now, and keep up the good work for causes that are most meaningful to you. I'll keep bringing you content that can help you do it even better. Have a great week, and I'll see you next time on The Path.